Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I'm your host, Mark Melton, and in today's episode, we will continue our conversation with Robert Nicholson from the Philos Project. Robert talked about historical trends that have led us to the current Middle East minority problem. He mentions the fall of the Ottoman Empire to the rise and fall of Arab nationalism, which actually allowed non-Muslims to participate fully in society under a secular identity instead of acting as second-class citizens. And now there is this issue of Islamism spreading across the region and with different Islam sects fighting each other. This conversation helps illuminate how there is, as Robert puts it, a vibrant mosaic of peoples in the Middle East and not just a mass homogenous Arab Muslim sea. Robert has made this argument in previous writings for Providence. If you have not already listened to part one, I highly recommend you do so, whether by going to providencemag.com or by downloading it from iTunes or SoundCloud. Again, I would like to give special thanks to Joseph Rossell for producing this episode. One of the things you were talking about here was promoting federalism and uh, letting the uh, local governments or the local people have more say over their lives and how they are governed. And recently, you have been promoting the idea of safe havens in Iraq, especially for the Assyrian Christians, I believe, and the Nineveh Plains. Is that correct? Yes. Do you want to speak about those plans, what they would actually entail, and where do they stand now? No, thank you for asking that, Mark. It's, this is really something we're working on a lot in real time. And for me, the Nineveh Plain uh, example, or the Nineveh Plain case, is uh, in microcosm something that can work for other parts of the region as well. And again, it goes toward this idea of devolving power. The interesting thing about the Iraqi constitution is that it's one of the most federalist friendly documents you'll ever read. Serious provisions for decentralizing power to the different regions and provinces of the state. In practice, however, it's never been implemented. So you have this situation where Iraq, one of the most diverse places in the Middle East, continues to be run, notwithstanding you know the transition from Saddam to a democratically elected government, it continues to be run uh, with a heavy hand from Baghdad. And what we're calling for is local self-government, uh, self-determination, self-protection for Christians, Assyrian Christians, and other minorities in this part of northern Iraq that's called the Nineveh Plain. It's in the northeast of, of Mosul. It's the historic heartland of the Assyrian people, an important place for the Yazidis and other communities as well. And all we're saying is that the future of Christianity in Iraq must begin with a discussion about empowering the Christians of Iraq. No longer can they be marginalized in the political process. No longer can they be controlled by the Arabs or the Kurds. They need local self-government. They need to manage their own affairs on a day-to-day basis. And essentially what that means is as these areas are liberated, as Mosul and the surrounding areas are liberated, those areas are essentially roped off for the minority populations that live there, people who fled there so that they can return, they can begin to rebuild their lives. And then as they do that, to transition that safe haven into a province, a self-governing province within the federated structure of the Republic of Iraq. It's very well provided for in the Iraqi constitution. It's been called for by the Iraqi president. Uh, Various people in the Iraqi uh, political arena have agreed to it. The Kurds have agreed to it. Different players around the world, different states, the European parliament, some members of U.S. Congress have said that this is desirable. 
And it was even a decision by the Iraqi cabinet in January 2014 to actually do this before ISIS came in. Of course, when ISIS came in, those plans fell apart. But what's needed is leadership, I would say, by the United States to say this is something that's desirable. It will, first of all, protect the minorities in a serious way, in a sustainable way. It will actually strengthen the fabric of Iraq, its political fabric, by beginning this process of decentralization that we've been talking about. And it's an idea that can work in other parts of the region as well, especially in Syria. This is the future of the Middle East, I would say. And I think that to the extent that we can move power from the capital to these communities, we will be more successful in seeing stability return to the region. And if this is not the future, it seems to me that the other option is that the Middle East looks more and more like Aleppo. Absolutely. I think what you will see, if, if minorities are not empowered to protect themselves, to govern themselves, they will be forced to flee. And a Middle East that's free of minorities, that's free of these other communities, that becomes less of a mosaic and more of a sort of a unified Islamic region, the more radical it's likely to become. And I think the civil war is only likely to be exacerbated uh, by the, 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 the fleeing of these minorities from the region. So this is, we're really at a key moment. Like I said, there's, there's about 200,000 Christians still in Iraq. There's several hundred thousand, maybe over a million in Syria. And there's no way that those communities will survive if these sorts of things are not put into place. They will leave and the region will suffer and I think it's important to note that the Christians there have been there for centuries. Do you want to speak to their history in that area? I often remind American Christians that Christianity is, in fact, not American, and it's not even European. It is a Middle Eastern religion that was born in this region among people who look very much like the people we might profile at, a, at an airport. It's a very Semitic, very Middle Eastern religion. I often you know, hear responses from Christians in America toward the issue that go something like, well, what are they doing there? They just need to get out. They need to flee. Like, let the, help them come over to the United States. And what they don't know is that Christianity has been an integral part of Middle Eastern society ever since the very beginning. This is before Islam, after Islam. Christians have been some of the most innovative and upstanding and important members of their constituent societies. And I think that the idea of helping Christians in the Middle East doesn't always lead to let's get them out. I think if you ask most of the Christians, you know, what would you prefer to move to a completely foreign country and have to learn that language and uh, get a new trade or, or go back to school or stay in your native homeland speaking your native language, they absolutely choose to stay. It's, it's ideal for them, it's preferable for them, and I think that they themselves are calling for more self-government as a precondition for their ability to stay. They, they've had enough. If you talk to them, they're extremely traumatized. They have no trust in the societies around them. They have no trust in Iraq, for example. They don't trust the Kurds. They don't trust the Arabs. For them, the future means let us protect ourselves. And I think that we in the West, have we make a mistake by thinking they all just want to leave and, and come live in the United States. And I should also mention for Iraqi Christians particularly, their history goes back even beyond Christianity. You know, many of these Christians identify as Assyrians or as Chaldeans. They speak Aramaic, they speak modern Aramaic, they preserve their script, they preserve their customs, their dances, their culture. You know, they name their children Ashurbanipal and Sargon. These people have been in the region much longer than Christianity. They've been there for thousands and thousands of years. And for them, 
seeing their cultural heritage destroyed, seeing the the winged bulls and seeing uh, you know these various Assyrian monuments defaced and destroyed by ISIS, for them it's more than just religious persecution. This is this is national extermination. This is genocide of an entire people. And for them, you know, to move to the West, there's no way they can survive as a people, as an Assyrian nation here in exile. They will, you know, as Christians in a Christian society, they'll tend to assimilate. The children forget their language in maybe one or two generations. And there's a real feeling, not just, wow, we have to flee Iraq because it's really bad, but we may just disappear as a people completely. And people in the West really miss that. And also on the same topic of federalism and minority rights, your article in the issue number three for Providence that came out in the spring of 2016, you wrote about Palestine and you wrote about the Christian communities there. And we'll be sure to post this onto the post once the podcast goes live. But do you want to speak to uh, some of the lessons you feel that this article could teach us for today? Yes, it's a really interesting case, the, the case of Israel and, and the situation of the Palestinians, especially the Palestinian Christians. You know, thinking about, okay, as we talk about all of these transitions around the region, what about Israel? What's going on there? I think it's important to note Israel proper, excluding the Palestinian territories, is the only place in the region where Christianity has actually grown since World War One or, or since Israel was created. Having said that, the Christians are a very small minority and when you're talking about the West Bank and Gaza, uh, the Palestinian territories, which are governed by a, you know, an indigenous Palestinian government called the Palestinian Authority, the situation for Christians, who are only about you know, 1 or 2% of the population, is incredibly at risk. I think for a long time, Arab nationalism worked in the same way it did in other places of the region, where whether they were Christians or Muslims, you know, Arab Palestinians were able to participate and be part of this larger Palestinian national discourse. Now that Arab nationalism has all but collapsed, you know, Palestinian Christians are also looking around the region, seeing what's happening to their brothers and sisters in other parts of the Middle East and wondering, are we next? And, it, and I had this very interesting experience in speaking to people on the ground, and I'm talking Palestinians inside the territories, Palestinian Arabs inside Israel proper, and Jews in Israel proper, asking about the two-state solution, the prospects for it, the optimism for it, what are, what are we thinking? And I have this really interesting realization, and it's borne out in polling data that I actually include in the article, showing that among a wide swath of Jews and Arabs, there is deep, deep lack of belief that the two-state solution will ever work. And there's a, on the Palestinian side of the Green Line and the Palestinian Authority, there is a deep level of dissatisfaction with the current Palestinian government. And I show in the article, a number of different outcomes from surveys, Palestinian surveys, showing that people are dissatisfied with the economy and with education and with corruption and with the lack of free speech and all of these different things. And really taking a step back and saying, okay, so what is the future of the two-state solution? And how does the future of Christians stand to be affected by that? And I think it's a very important question for the region, often in the discourse about Israel and, and Palestine, you find, you know, a lot of talk about settlements, a lot of talk about different sorts of, you know, Israeli oppression and all of these different things. But very few people are thinking about the bigger question about what is going to be the future of Palestinian self-government. Now, I am 
a, a firm believer in Palestinian self-determination, just as I believe in Assyrian and, and Kurdish self-determination. But what do you do when the Palestinian government uh, is itself corrupt and illegitimate in the eyes of the people? When Hamas appears more legitimate in the eyes of the average Palestinian on the street? And, I, and what I'm arguing in the article is that whatever the answer to that question is, is going to have deep ramifications for Palestinian Christians. And they are either going to have to contemplate fleeing themselves, as many of them do on a regular basis, possibly even seeking asylum inside Israel proper, or uh, learn to live under an Islamist government, because that's where much of Palestinian politics is headed. There is a question about maybe there being a one-state solution. This very unique situation where you have very right-wing Jews and very, you know, I guess, left-wing Palestinian nationalists saying the same thing, meaning we want one state. We want to be together in one state. Now, they differ on how that will work out in practice, but you do have some a growing desire, especially among Palestinian Christians, uh, that they would rather have Israel sort of swallow the West Bank, uh, extend equal rights to all of the Palestinians who live there, and have one state for these two peoples. Now, from the Jewish perspective, it sounds scary because, you know, a state that is so mixed will, in some sense, cease to be a Jewish state. And that was, after all, the whole purpose of Israel was to create a safe place uh, in the Jewish homeland for Jews to live. Uh, having said that, more and more and more people are sort of leaning in that direction. And so for me, I end the article leaving open the question for Palestinian Christians saying, either stop spending so much time talking about Jewish settlements and start building a positive vision for Palestinian nationalism that is inclusive and liberal, or be prepared to live under a very different kind of regime uh, because that's where things are going. You mentioned how Arab nationalism failed and that once Arab nationalism failed, you then start to see the rise of Islamism. And I wonder you know, why did Arab nationalism fail? Was there a lack of economic development, economic success? Because when I look at other countries that fall apart or you know, people groups who separate, there tends to be an economic reason where we come together because I prosper when we come together. And when I no longer prosper, then we tend to separate into other communities where we feel like we can prosper. Do you think that that can help explain why Arab nationalism failed, or do you think there are other reasons? I think there's, there's two main reasons. One is the problematic identity of being an Arab, and the second is the performance of these Arab nationalist governments. So first, the idea that all of these people are Arabs was not necessarily intuitive for the people who were asked to claim this identity. And what happened was under Saddam, under Bashar al-Assad and his father, you had sort of forced Arabization. So you may, in your mind and in your community, think of yourself as an Assyrian or a Kurd or some other sort of ethnic minority, a Cherkassian or something else. And along comes these Arab nationalist regimes and they say, no, you're an Arab. It's not unlike what Turkey has done to the Kurds living in the southeastern part of the country, saying, no, you're not a Kurd, you're a mountain Turk. And the Kurds are saying, no, we're Kurds. And in Iraq and Syria, you had Assyrians and you had Kurds and others saying, no, we're Assyrians and Kurds, we're not Arabs. Well, yeah, we, we know Arabic, but that doesn't make us an Arab. And I think what you saw start to happen over the 20th century was 
the slow unraveling of the Arab identity itself. People stopped believing in it, if they believed in it at all. And I think that it's hard to build an entire sort of pan-Arab movement when the very idea of Arabness is being called into question. So that's one. The second thing is, I think, precisely what you say. These Arab nationalist regimes, uh, looking at people like Saddam, like Hafez al-Assad, like uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, they failed. They were not able to deliver what their societies needed. First of all, they were failing in their wars against Israel. Time after time, they suffered defeat and the ensuing humiliation of losing to the Jews. One cannot overstate the importance of that on the minds of the people in the street, but also absolutely in the economic realm. The GDPs were stagnating, even going south in a lot of cases, you know, and this whole question of why are we, the Arab and Islamic world, why are we not rising to the level of Europe or Asia? All of these other societies are, are moving up. We're stagnating. Why is that? And I think looking at these regimes, realizing that the Arab identity that they were based on was itself problematic, seeing a real lack of legitimacy in their rule, there was a widespread dissatisfaction and a realization that these people cannot save us. Who else can save us? What other resources do we have in our societies that can save us? And many people, as we said before, turned back to Islam. And many people even blamed the stagnation of the Middle East on punishment from God. You know, we abandon Islamic governance. We abandon the caliphate. God clearly is not happy with us and he's punishing us. He's letting us lose to the Jews. He's freezing our economies. And, and it sounds absurd to a Western ear, but I think for many people in the Middle East, those are very real concerns. And so people turn back to Islam in many ways in search of some sort of redemption. You know, Islam can save us, God can save us. We need to be more Muslim, even going to absurd lengths to try to imitate the prophet and his companions and trying to rebuild society in a way that would be pleasing to God. And I think much of what you've seen since the 60s and the 70s has been an attempt to find the perfect Islamic society and thereby reinvigorate the Muslim world. It is so easy today to think, look, we're becoming more and more energy independent. Uh, the Middle East has a lot of issues that it needs to sort out, and only it can sort it out for itself. Uh, and we have a lot of stuff going on. We wanna, we're busy trying to rebuild our nation, trying to make our nation great again. We, we have other concerns, and there's other parts of the world that are more strategically important. And I think uh, what I would caution against is this widespread sort of pullback uh, from the region for a couple of reasons. One is we're not as energy independent as we think we are, and not quite yet. We're on the path there, thank God, but we're not quite there. We have lots of strategic assets in the region, not least of all our allies, Israel, uh, and some of these other regimes, Jordan. It's important that we shore up those alliances, not uh, pull back even more. I think also there's widespread human catastrophe. And now, while it's certainly not the United States' responsibility to solve world problems, and you know, rush to the side of every suffering person. I think the level of human suffering and the scale of the catastrophe uh, that's currently gripping the Middle East, I mean, look at Syria, uh, case in point, uh, demands some sort of action on our part. And what we found is that we leave the Middle East, but the Middle East comes to us. And we can cut and run or think we're cutting and running and it turns out that the problems that uh, are sort of rippling through those societies end up showing up on our shores as well. So I think the idea that 
you know, we're going to sort of uh, disengage is, is a false one and even a dangerous one. And I think, you know, the, it's important to realize that the, that the other alternative isn't, you know, wholesale reinvasion of the region. It's steady, smart, constructive engagement, working through our alliances, uh, working toward those uh, concepts of liberty and justice, of civil society uh, that speak to people in the region today. And I think, again, where Donald Trump can really excel here is focusing on business. The Middle East is a tremendous market uh, and it's, it's, it's almost undeveloped. And I think working uh, with, with our allies, uh, and I think there's, there's, there's a real opportunity for that. I think we can not just, uh, you know, sort of stabilizing, but we can actually see some, some uh, trends in, in the right direction. And it will be small at first uh, and it's very tough going. But there's no alternative. Things are only getting worse, and whatever happens there will not stay there. That's the reality. Whenever I hear people talk about how the U.S. should be non-interventionist in this area, I think about how Obama seemed to try to do that, and it didn't quite work out, and he kept getting dragged in more and more, um, and that it would have been better if he had had a coherent strategy from the beginning. Absolutely, and what you find is you know, when we pull out, other people pull in. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. And what you saw throughout the Obama years, particularly in these last few years, is that, you know, each step that we pulled out, Russia, Iran stepped in to fill the void. And I think that unless we're prepared to see, you know, a Russia-dominated or Iran-dominated region, uh, then we have to be engaged. As much as we may not like it, it's critical that we fill that void with our principles and our ideals and our interests rather than the interests of, of Moscow or Tehran. And it's also a region that touches so many others, whether it's Europe or Africa and then going towards Asia and even the shipping lanes. It's not an area that can easily be abandoned. And even if I've heard people talk about, well, China can step in and they do can do more. Well, they're going to face the same problems, I think. And, you know, Maybe the Chinese, if they are thinking about it, can listen to this podcast and maybe take some lessons out of it as well. <laughs> that would be nice. Well, thank you very much for coming in and speaking with us today. And uh, have safe travels back to New York. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Providence. You're doing great work.